Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Hi, this is Ruben Loftus-Cheek. This is William. I'm Mason Mount. You're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode of the London is Blue podcast, a third one this week. So if you missed part one, all about Project Restart, I uh, talked about N'Golo Kante. Part two is all about transfers. Is Jorginho going to go? Is Kai Havertz coming in? What is Timo Werner doing? There's a lot to unpack in there. Uh, and thankfully, Liam had a great, great amount of insight. So go back and listen to that. But this one, all right, is all about Roman's takeover of Chelsea Football Club. And it might seem a little random why we're talking about this. Um, but Liam, you wrote... A great article again on the athletic about this topic so we just want to you know get a little bit maybe more insight get some context or really this is going to plug that article and tell everyone to go read it because it is well worth the investment in time uh but right before we get into that nick new partnership signables.com what are we running with them that's right use the code lib20 for 20 percent off all purchases of signables these are kind of match ball leather signed um, player artifacts. So uh, not only do they have kind of their standard facsimile signings, they have a bunch of kind of uh, world-class signed memorabilia as well on their site. You can go take a look at that. They have five Chelsea players available on their their Chelsea list, Pulisic, Conte, Aspi, William, and Pedro. Uh, And then we are finishing up a giveaway on Instagram. If If you're hearing this on Friday, we're finishing up that giveaway this week. So... 
Um, head on over to signables.com, LIB20 for 20% off your purchases. All right. So, Liam, we, ha- Liam, we have talked about one of your latest pieces. Again, theathletic.com. It's brilliant recounting of Roman's takeover at Chelsea. Um, I'm interested in why you decided to write like this, how it all came together. Um, yeah, I guess kind of give us the the 30,000 foot view on this thing. Well, it was part of an, a broader series that The Athletic are doing um, of oral histories on a variety of different subjects. Uh, I think we, we, we've seen, I think The Athletic stateside have had some great success with, with some fantastic oral histories. I remember one about Kawhi Leonard during the NBA finals last year. Um, and so I think it's been a point of emphasis for us on the UK side to try and find stories that we can tell in a similar way. Uh, and so we were asked as, as club writers and as senior writers to, to pitch different ideas that we, we thought would, would work well for the format. And it felt like the Abramovich takeover story in that whole mad summer of 2003 uh, was a particularly good one to do because, first of all, it's it's the most pivotal moment in Chelsea's modern history. Um, but also, I think that there, there were a lot of stories attached to it which maybe hadn't been hadn't been told or or had been forgotten a little bit with with the passage of time. I think there are probably still a lot more stories to tell that we didn't get to because there were a lot of people that we wanted to speak to who either declined to speak to us or, or couldn't be reached. So I think there's a lot more potential, but I'm, I'm pleased with the piece as it turned out that we, we managed to at least tell a few of them. So so one of the things, you know, I think just set the stage, right? I think you guys did a really good job in the intro of, of kind of underscoring the significance of what happened and how quickly it happened. Um, you know, that was kind of a, I remember reading that originally and then kind of when you get, um, reacclimated to the story, it's like, oh my god, this happened in what seemed like snap of a finger, uh, really. Um, you you wrote that he changed English football forever. Obviously, the sixteen trophies in a seventeen year kind of ownership cycle is absolutely insane from a return standpoint for fans. Uh, the thing that you wrote though to tee up the piece before we kind of get into how the timeline worked is. It's something that I want to read verbatim because I think it was, it was that good. A string of historic triumphs made legends of John Terry, Frank Lampard, Didier Drogba, and others. All of it came at vast expense, just under $1.5 billion of Abramovich's wealth, according to the most recent accounts, with £247 million pumped in during the 12 months from June 2018 to 20, June 2019. More than $100 million of total investment has been sent spent sacking some of like the 12 different managers who've worked under Abramovich. This to me underscores how much he's personally invested in the club, not only in the takeover, which was significant to kind of balance the accounts and everything like that. But since then, I mean, he's clearly still spending money. He clearly still invested in Chelsea. Why do you think he gets a bad rap recently for not being as involved? Well, I think, I think the optics of recent years, have have not been as good. I mean, obviously, Chelsea have not been quite as dominant in the last few years sure. as they were previously, although they've still won two Premier League titles, so it's not bad. Um, the fact that he has had this running dispute with the UK government that has meant that he's no longer at games, I think it only fuels suggestions that he's not as committed as he once was. Um, 
And it's only really when you dig down into those numbers, some of the ones you mentioned, um, and also take a closer look at what they're doing, you know, in terms of spending in transfer windows, that you realise, no, actually they are. He is still very committed because you can't judge a guy like Abramovich by his words. There are none. <laughs> he doesn't talk mm-hmm. uh, to anyone publicly. That's not the way he operates. Um, so you can only judge him by his actions, really. That's the only reliable judge of how committed he is to Chelsea. And if you look at his actions, by the money that he's spending, quarter of a billion in the last year alone, but also the fact that he's made the club front and centre of um, the anti-Semitism, the campaign against anti-Semitism that, that he has launched, um, I think makes owning Chelsea even more important to him than it ever has been. So the, the fact that he's not at games is a, is a little bit jarring. I think for Chelsea fans as much as anyone else, but there's no suggestion that, um, that that he's any less committed or that he's actively looking at selling the club. I'm sure there has been interest. I mean, we know of Jim Ratcliffe. We know of some other people that have expressed interest in buying Chelsea and maybe Abramovich has a price. Only he knows that. Um, but there's no suggestion that anything has ever been close or that, um, or that his commitment levels have noticeably dipped in recent years. Can't understand any fan not backing Roman and like not having him not having the full support. 1.5 billion pounds. Just out of his personal wealth, just here you go. Go win trophies. Um, So anyway, some of the, again, we don't want to, kind of pull too much out of this, but I think there's some things we can talk about, um, you know, to give people an idea of what's in there. And, you know, there's just some great stories and like recounts, you know, to you guys' point. Um, you guys had some great quotes, obviously, um, you know, the win over Liverpool was just so crucial in that run up. And, and this was when Abramovich was looking at buying a club. Chelsea were in the run to Champions League. Uh, it was either Champions League or administration for this club at this point. Um, and then you guys had a great quote from Graham Lasso about, you know, the win over Liverpool and, and how they got there. And it was just, even the players knew it was so tight. We're either going into administration or we're going to get bought by a billionaire. Go get them, guys. <laughs> Wild. The interesting thing about that is the the level of financial concern is still a little bit muddy to this day. So, it was made clear to the players by Trevor Birch that if you don't win, Chelsea may cease. Or if you lose, because Chelsea had to draw, Chelsea may cease to exist. Um, now, whether that was true or whether it was an exaggeration on Birch's part to try and focus a few minds, we still don't know because I spoke to Mark Taylor, Chelsea director at the time, um, Ken Bates' personal lawyer for a while um, for their piece, and he insists that while the club would have had to make some difficult financial decisions um, if they'd lost that game, that would probably have been limited to to selling players and maybe taking a step back as a club rather than being, in his words, leads under Peter Ridsdale, where it's just all burning to the ground. Um, but I think there's no, I think it's pretty clear that if Chelsea had lost that game, it's possible that Bramwich still may have bought the club. We've never had a clear answer to that. We do know that Chelsea being in the Champions League was a very attractive thing to Abramovich at the time. Um, But it's clear that Chelsea 
wouldn't have been the same. They wouldn't have been operating even at that same level the following season had Abramovich not come in. They didn't have Champions League football. Um, so it was just a, a cascade of transformative events, really. And you've got this, you've got the Birch speech before the game, but you've also got this uh, US Vietnam War veteran giving a motivational talk to all the players in the in the in the hotel opposite Hyde Park, and Graham Lasso saying that he felt like going into Hyde Park and doing some military manoeuvres. He was so pumped up after <laughs> hearing all this stuff. It was the night before the game. They. They had another twelve hours or so to play. That, that that part of the story was amazing to read, and it yeah, <laughs> I I think what I took out of this and why I think it's such a well written article is because I felt tense reading the beginning of it, just reading some of these quotes and understanding how much was on the line, and just hearing from the players uh, that they were like, oh, well this this could go very differently uh, if if we don't kind of finish the job here, so. Um, obviously they do. And, and I want, I want to leave a little bit to the imagination so that people go read that part of the, the article because it, it is fascinating. One of the things that I, I desperately want to get into is just how quickly and, and without maybe as much polish, some of these things came to light. And, and I think one of the things that I pulled out was the, the Forbes magazine <laughs> piece about like no one knowing who Abramovich was. And then they're, they're being a Forbes magazine open to number 15. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how that process went down? Yeah, that was one of my favorite details in the piece was when Mark Taylor said we didn't know who he was. And then he brought his lawyers brought in a copy of Forbes and, and there he was, X billion dollars. Um, yeah, it, it, it all happened very, very quickly. And I, I believe it started with the fact that Chelsea had been seeking outside investment for a couple of years um, and, and they'd... They'd enlisted the help of a bank, which I believe to be UBS, um, to, to, to try and source some outside investment. And coincidentally, once Abramovich decided he wanted to buy a club, um, his people were talking to the same bank. Uh, and, and there's also, I don't think that was the only connection because Abramovich was also associated with Pinny Zahavi, a very influential football agent at the time. And he is the one that calls Trevor Birch and says, I know this really rich guy is interested in buying Chelsea. Do you want to meet him? Um, and so they have this first meeting in, at Stamford Bridge in the Millennium Suites. And there's slightly differing accounts of what went down in that meeting. Birch suggests that they basically did the deal in outline there and then for the club. Um but at the same time, Ken Bates wasn't there and he's the one who would have ultimately had to agree to it. So the, the meeting with Bates doesn't happen for another day or two. But it, it, from, from the point of first contact to the point at which they officially wrap the deal on July 1st is basically a week, uh, which is astonishing for a deal <laughs> of that size. But also one of the other things I was told talking to Mark Taylor was I mean, and you've seen this more recently, that if if football takeovers are going to happen, they happen quickly. If they're if they're dragging on, it's generally a sign that the person who's being associated with buying the club doesn't actually have the money. And you've seen that a few times with Newcastle in recent years, with Amanda Staveley's um, previous failed attempts to to front consortiums. If if there's prolonged negotiation it's a pretty good indicator that the people that are looking at the club 
don't have as much money as they say they do. Whereas Abramovich, it was very clear from the outset. Yeah, he has the money, um, and and he wants it. He wants it done now. And he brought it in cash to the meeting, and plopped <laughs> it. No, I'm kidding. Obviously, um, what another thing that I took out of this though is that the the stadium piece was a huge mm-hmm. consideration. Um, I think most people are aware of the famous like helicopter flying over the entirety of London story and kind of ooh, there's that one and there, you know all that kind of stuff, but. Uh, maybe, maybe talk about how Fulham, <laughs> uh, did, did not cover themselves in glory during this. Well, Fulham quite harshly dealt with in the piece, I think. Um, it, <laughs> I, I always, I've always quite liked Fulham and I really like Craven Cottage. It's, uh, we do too, it's a lovely honestly. old, yeah, it's a lovely time. old football stadium, but, um, great but American yeah, I, presence. I, Gotta love that. <laughs> I'd heard that story in passing before. Um, but to hear Mark Taylor say that, Eugene Tenenbaum had directly told him, yeah, we were in the helicopter flying over Craven Cottage and Roman was like, you want me to buy that? And uh, it, it wasn't Craven Cottage at its most flattering because the pitch was all dug up. It was off season. Um, obviously, it's, it's not the biggest stadium, so it's going to look even smaller from the air. Uh, but yeah, it was it, it was quite quite a funny little detail. And, and I think um, the, the fact that Stamford Bridge at the time was in such good condition because of the work of Bates and 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 the rest of the people that were running Chelsea Village at the time um, was a big factor. The facilities were really good, and and while I don't think Abramovich and the people around him uh, were particularly fussed about the hotels and everything that went around the stadium, uh, I, I remember Bruce Buck saying that you know maybe if they if 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 they were buying the club now. I think they would have rather have just had the room to expand the stadium rather than all those things around it. Um, but at the time, the fact that you had these additional businesses and the stadium had all the stands had been individually re- redeveloped and the facilities were quite new really helped che- Chelsea's case. And again, we're talking about this in 2020, right? We've just seen Spurs one point whatever billion dollar stadium finish. This is way before that. This is before Liverpool even redeveloped their their stand at Anfield. This is even before the Emirates for Arsenal. They're still at the Highbury at this time. So, like, you have to remember, at the time, Chelsea had a huge stadium, you know. In recent times, the London Stadium, Anfield redeveloping, like other stadiums have gone on to surpass Chelsea. Um, but you have to think about that too, because as as you read it just now, you're like, "What do you mean Ch- Stanford Bridge isn't considered one of the best stadiums?" Okay, 2003 is a very different picture and landscape in in the Premier League, and so I think that's it's interesting to hear Stanford Bridge talked about like that, Liam, at that time by those people, and I think that helps. And obviously, hindsight and all of the the struggles that they have with redevelopment and expanding Stanford Bridge, you're like, yeah, maybe could have tried to you know, think about that a little bit more, but um, I don't think any Chelsea fan is going to care, honestly. And I would say, lastly, I forgot who wrote the piece, but the long story short is match day revenues pale in comparison to commercial and TV revenues. And so while Arsenal have a bigger stadium, we actually can make more money than them in the long run because of our commercial and our sponsorship deals and the TV rights as well. Um, So, you know, it kind of goes back and forth. So, um, there's definitely two sides to that. Um, 
But I thought so. I just wanted to kind of let you pull out the the Robert Huth quote because I thought that was hilarious. Him as a young player at Chelsea, seeing it almost go bankrupt, and he's talking about these cutbacks to all of a sudden a life of lavishness. What a crazy perspective for him at that time. Yeah, and I think um, he and the young husband brothers who are also quoted in that section of the piece, they kind of represent the cost of the revolution. Um, because if you'd looked at Chelsea going into that summer, if they hadn't have got the Champions League, if they'd had to sell players, the guys in the academy, the guys in the reserves who were on the fringes of the first team squad at that time, they were the ones who stood to benefit most um, from from that set of circumstances at Chelsea. And then suddenly Abramovich comes in, what, about eight new players arrive for, for about 150 million, unprecedented spending spree. Um, they've suddenly got two top class players at every position and it's a it's a really difficult situation. And and I remember when I interviewed the young husbands for the separate piece I did of, about that about them, they, they remained very positive about that time. They they were like, We didn't look at it that way. We didn't we didn't feel intimidated. We we saw it as a challenge and we saw it as a unique opportunity to learn from all these great players that were coming in. But I think you can perfectly understand where Huth is coming from as well, where he's saying as a young player, I was scared, you know, because he was just starting to 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 try to establish himself in the in the squad. He was already competing against, you know, an emerging John Terry, Marcel Desai has been been there for a good few years, William Gallas, um, and then all of a sudden, even more players come in a, a, around it to to strengthen the squad at, at the cost of youth. So I think it shows that there's always there's always someone that 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 pays a price, and there's always some sort of opportunity cost, but. No one would argue that, that that Chelsea didn't come out that stronger that summer, much stronger than they went into it. Yeah, he he said that there used to be one player, one room. Then things got tight. Then like, all right, how about we? You can have you guys share rooms when we travel. To now, it was like private coach charter. Like you said, these huge European players, these huge contracts. Can you imagine what that parking lot at Cobham went from literally overnight to like nice cars to like. Holy shit, cars! Well, they were still at Harlington at that point as well, and that's Fair. another because that was part of Roman's project. Yeah, yeah, that's another aspect of the kind of messy transition is you've got all these expensive European stars turning up, and they're turning up to a really shoddy training ground that's being shared with university teams, and they've got you know four or five separate changing rooms that only three or four of them can fit at any one time. And there's the story in Frank Lampard's book actually, which we didn't use in the piece of um, Abramovich turning up, taking one look around at Harlington, and telling his advisor in no uncertain terms that this was a rude word, uh, and and it, and instructing the people around him immediately to to try and find a site for a, for a purpose built training ground. And of course, Cobham happens very quickly after that. Well, it it kind of dovetails into the last thing about, you know, kind of the perfect way that I would end this, especially because Frank Lampard's now the, the manager, but at the, at the time was a player. He, he said that the landscape of the club changed in an instant uh, because of the desire for excellence. I, I thought that was just a, a beautiful quote because it underlines not only the investment and like some of the uh, polish that was added to the club at that time, maybe, but desire for excellence. I mean, we, we talked about 12 managers, 200 million pounds spent on firing, you know, 
managers that Roman thought weren't were, was not performing to the to the standard. That seems to be the the kind of thread throughout this piece, right? Yeah, and I think Lampard um, speaks to the more unexpected side of the way that summer really set up the modern Chelsea because you look at Lampard, you look at John Terry, who were both already there and semi-established, well, probably mostly established as, as pretty regular starters at that point when Abramovich comes in and starts spending all this money. And they have a choice. They can either leave the club and go somewhere else where they're more guaranteed to play um, or they can raise their own games, rise to the challenge of, in Lampard's case, one Sebastian Veron coming in, um, all these other really famous famous names, and make themselves integral to where the club is going. And it's a huge credit to Lampard and Terry that they were able to to do that so successfully. Um, but it was it was kind of an unintended, unexpected consequence of Abramovich coming into to spend all this money that it actually inspired two players that were already there to not just keep themselves in the team, but become symbols of the powerhouse that Chelsea became. Well, the, the last one I just want to end with, and I'm not sure honestly how you handle this. So no pressure if you know how you want to take it, but we did get a question from J dub saying, what, what do you think is the club's kind of one and three, one year, three year and five year plans and goals, especially since we've seen the quality of our youth core will only improve. Um, just from like a, a playing ambition, do you think much has changed? Do you think Chelsea are still where they were when Abramovich took over back in 2003? Well, I think they're, they're operating in a very different landscape even before the pandemic hit because since, you know, from, from, from 2003 to 2008, but certainly until 2011 at the latest, um, they were the biggest spenders and they were able to to drive the Premier League market and and pay more for players for anyone else, pay pay bigger wages than anyone else, and they'd had they had a level of squad, which I think if you look from 2011 to 2020 has not been the case because Chelsea just haven't been able to have that position in the transfer market. Um, Man City changed changed things. United are obviously still spending big and PSG have changed things on the continent for everyone. Um, so they've, they've had to make a strategic decision to, to try and do things a, li- a little bit differently. That has come from trying to buy players that are a little bit younger and, and, and build up this core different way, which I think they did really well from 2012 to 2015 while remaining compliant with financial fair play. So that's, that's the, the environment they've been operating in for much of the last decade. And now finally, um, given how much resource they've poured into the academy from the, from the start, the academy is starting to take centre stage in everything the club is doing for, doing going forward. So I think we're, we're almost now approaching a kind of third era of Abramovich's Chelsea. We had the first act, which was the spending, the rise, um, the, the edge, the fundamental edge that Abramovich's money gave them over everyone else. And then we had the second act, which was FFP and trying to remain successful and competitive in a different financial environment. And now you've got 
the third act, which is whatever the transfer market looks like once once this pandemic is um, well in the midst of this pandemic and beyond, um, what the academy can can do in providing the the core of this squad and an identity going forward, um, and how well they can recruit around that, and whether Lampard can be a, a kind of long term figure overseeing it all. Um, I think before the events of the last couple of months happened, I think Chelsea's plans were next season to to close the gap on City and Liverpool. I don't think they ex- they expect to be able to to beat them unless there's some serious regression from one or both of those teams because they've they've raised the bar to an incredible level. You need ninety five to one hundred points to win the league. Um, but I think they're they're hoping to close that gap at least, and then I think there are realistic aims to win the Premier League again within the next three years. Uh, and in terms of becoming relevant again in the knockout stages of the Champions League, you're probably looking at the same sort of timetable or maybe closer to five years to have the squad to to be able to do it all. But that's, that's I think, what you would look at as the, as the general schedule if everything goes to plan and they make the right decisions. Brilliant. Thank you, Liam. Thank you so much again. Theathletic.com at Liam underscore Toomey on Twitter. Links in the description. The full article, well, well worth your time to read, is on there. It's about a 45-minute read. Budget your time appropriately. <laughs> the thing goes forever and ever, but it's amazing. So go go read it. Link, link in the description as well. Uh, but again, Liam, we are so glad to have you on. It's been far too long, but we are glad to see you are safe and settled. Um, and whenever we get back to London, we will be sure to reach out and and connect again that way. When it's safe, of course. Oh, I remember those days when we were able to get on planes and go places. <laughs> I know. But hopefully that happens again. You were probably going to be coming stateside for Chelsea summer tour that didn't happen. Yeah, I think they were very likely to be going to the US this summer before. Yep, party plans ruined. But hey, big picture stuff going on in the world, so we will gladly be responsible and do our part. Uh, But that is a wrap. Again, thank you, Liam, for joining us. Nick holding down the fort while Dan's on his anniversary, rightly so. But that's going to wrap it up for this week. And so until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.